Welcome to AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. A few days ago, I was scrolling through Twitter, and I saw a post from a friend of mine, uh, Father Patty Gilger. He's a Jesuit who's based in New York City. But the tweet read something like, I guess I'll have to live in Milan forever now. And I thought, Milan? What is Patty doing in Milan? That's the the center of the COVID-19 outbreak in Europe. All of Italy really locked down. Um, how did he get there? Turns out Patty is in Milan right now. He's there to do some research for his PhD. He got there a couple of weeks ago. So I thought I'd call him up just to ask him how his spirit is in the midst of this, what the scene is like there in Milan, and see if he had any thoughts or reflections for us uh, as we start to to face this pandemic uh, here back uh, in North America. Thanks for joining us. Well, hey, Patty, thanks for hopping on uh, for AMDG. Uh, I saw you um, the other day tweet that you are are in Milan. I didn't really believe that since it seems like Milan's like on lockdown. So you're in what's the deal what, what, what are you doing over there yeah a few years ago i went to the south sudan and uh and it's strange that um going to milan has caused more of a crisis in my family than my going to south sudan did <laughs> sure so yeah how, what you're, you're not stationed there like full-time so what's going on what are you doing no no i was um i'm working on my phd right now and so i'm doing some research here for the last stage of my uh my dissertation research is here in Milan and then in Florence and then in Rome, hopefully. But with the lockdown, I'm not sure if I'll be able to complete everything that I had hoped for. But I've been here for now just over two weeks and learning Italian a little bit and living at our high school here, all that kind of thing. So as you were preparing to take that trip, things had already started to like, you know, they were getting worse in Italy, hadn't yet, um, you know, I guess reached the stage of lockdown as it is now. But so you were able to get there, but you know there were already some concerns. Were you, were you concerned at all, kind of approaching that? I can't say I was. No, the the news about the coronavirus had broken the day before I left. Actually, so I was leaving on a Monday night. I think Sunday, the day um, before the news came out a little bit, and I was interested. You know, I'm obviously concerned about it, but I was like, well, either I'm going to go or I'm not going to go. Either it's going to be bad or it's not going to be bad what's the use worrying about this? And so I was, I got on the plane the next night and I have to say the plane was empty. I mean, hmm. there must've been 20 people on this entire, you know, it's a 10 person wide uh, jet with the fancy seats and everything like this and flying across a direct overnight red eye to, uh, to Milan from New York city, almost nobody on it. Hmm. What's the scene like there now? Uh, seats, the scene is the streets are empty and, uh, things are open things are happening like there's cars on the streets people are going by every now and then you hear a fire engine or a police car or something like that and there are people out riding their bike and there are people in the park you know doing stuff like that um but it's also very quiet and it's very slow um so there's not a lot of people out at big events or there's no lines anywhere because the museums are closed and uh churches are closed all that kind of thing the churches are closed for masses all that kind of stuff. But it's a very strange feeling. One of the guys here in my community, an older Italian Jesuit, he's probably 80 years old. And he said to me the other day in Italian, so I'm not exactly sure perfectly what he said, but the effect was, um, if you live long enough, you'll see any everything. And uh, I never thought I would see anything like this in Italy, and now I have. So you mentioned another another Jesuit. So you're staying in a, in a community there in Milan. Um, where are you? Yeah, we have two communities here in Milan. This is our high school, 
It's called Leone Tredicismo, Leo the 13th. And it's a big high school, 1,200 boys. I think it's just boys, but it may be boys and girls. Um, there are about 1,200 kids. And uh, it's been closed down since I arrived, in fact. So they had been they had closed the schools um, that Monday that I, flew, that I flew out. And so I've been in the school for now over two weeks, but I haven't seen any students the entire time, hardly any faculty, all that kind of thing. They've been doing classes online. So what are your conversations at, you know, at dinner time about? Uh, I can only tell you a you know, very small part of that. <laughs> it's mostly just me keeping myself quiet. Uh, no, they're, the guys really are commenting on how strange this experience is for them. That Milan is usually a very vibrant city, very welcoming, friendly, um, exciting, inclusive, those kinds of things. It's very cosmopolitan, especially, you know, Italy is very cosmopolitan in many places, but Milan may be especially so. And they're saying this is a very strange experience that I can go walking out on the streets and there will be almost nobody there. Or there's a there's an older Italian Jesuit here who is the superior of the community. And he is like, uh, honestly, he looks like he stepped straight out of a Marlon Brando movie. He's it's spectacular, you know, hair. He wears the uh, he wears his beautiful uh, black overcoat just hung over his shoulders in the same way that Brando's, Brando's uh, characters would. And he's a fantastic guy, just a real gentleman. And he says he likes to go on walks every day, you know, passagiatas through the through the streets here. And he was noting that a lot of the people he was talking to are surprised when he even says hello to them. And he was like, you know, we can talk even if, you know, we can't shake hands right now. And so that's the kind of way. But usually the city is a very genteel city and uh, people are feeling a little retreated, uh, recalcitrant, a little withdrawn. Yeah. And, and just recently, then the prime minister of Italy kind of put this, the kind of shutdown that had happened in Milan, you know, the, the quarantine sort of like the request to kind of stay in place uh, mm -hmm. throughout the whole, the whole country. So, you know, sporting events shut down, um, you know, those things are, are unfolding and really, I think, emphasize the, you know, the importance of doing that, even if, you know, for young folks who are maybe not at risk themselves that like, you know, we do this, we kind of limit what we're doing in order to protect kind of the most fragile among us, most vulnerable among us, um, which struck me as like a pretty uh, Catholic vision of like what the, what the common good is that maybe we suspend some of our own freedoms yes. in order to kind of help everyone, especially those who are already uh, most vulnerable. Yeah, that's right. It's a it's the really difficult but really necessary inversion of our perspective where uh, the things that we do, what we use our freedom for is not an exercise of our own liberty so that I can do whatever I would like to do. It's a freedom for, to take responsibility for those who would not have the capacity to keep themselves safe from something like this. So I think it's a really responsible thing to do. Now, I know it's not easy and it's very difficult sometimes to, to you know, imagine St. Peter's Square not filled with pilgrims or to imagine there being no public masses in uh, in Milan. And, and for me, it's been a real sadness. Like I really wanted to go to the Duomo for mass and I've been there and that's been fantastic to be able to see it. But I will not be able to go there for mass unless I come back at some time in the future now and that's a real sadness for me, but you know, uh, it's more important. Like people are more important. What has been going through your own heart and mind and your own reflection, kind of, kind of being there in this, while also seeing start things start to unfold uh, here back home, um, where you are from. Yeah, the biggest thing that I'm seeing that's been 
disruptive for me. It's, you know, this is an operation of the evil spirit, I would say, is just to witness the way uh, fear breeds selfishness. And that's the kind of thing that I think we have to be very attentive to and aware of in our lives, that this is a situation where lots of people are under threat and it's easy to allow fear to get inside of us and then to start to take control of the kind of stuff that we want to be doing or not wanting to be doing in our own lives. So I know it might be tempting to, you know, like go to, I don't know, Costco and buy three rolling carts worth of paper towels and toilet paper and all this kind of stuff. But uh, this is the kind of stuff that I think in the scriptures would really be like, what will I do with all of this extra grain that I have from my really rich harvest? I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my smaller barns and build a bigger barn. You know, So I feel, I feel like this is what's going on. And it happens not because people are idiots, uh, but because they're afraid. And that's totally understandable. So I think we can meet ourselves in that fear and we can meet one another in that place of fear and just try to calm that for a moment and then take responsibility for what we can take responsibility for. Or if we're afraid, just say, yeah, I am actually afraid in the moment to God, please help me to my friends, please help me. Those kinds of different things. Yeah. That, that opens up, you know, a question for you as someone who, you know, spent a lot of time thinking about living the spiritual life, asking big questions. Like what, what do you do in those moments of fear when you kind of see them around you? Like what, what is, where's a place you go uh, when you notice that in yourself? Well, I think there's a handful of different answers to that. And so if I'm afraid, one of the things that I will do very often is try to take control of the situation or to understand it more deeply or more completely. And then that can mean sometimes like presenting a more persuasive or hard hitting argument about what's going on here. Um, for example, if we're sitting around talking and somebody's like, well, it could be this and this, and I'll be like, no, blah, 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 blah. You know, that's uh, but that can happen very much to me out of this place of nervousness and fear. So what I need to be doing in that time is instead of exercising control with whatever my particular talent is for, for me, it may be my mind or something else like that. Instead of trying to do that, I need to release, like I need to let go and try to encounter the other person in what they're actually offering as opposed to whatever fear it may kick up in me. But that's a very different thing than encountering somebody else in their own place of fear. That's like when someone else is afraid, that's very holy ground. That's the kind of place where we need to take off our sandals and really walk very gently uh, towards this place of fear, towards the heart of the other person. The goal of that journey of walking towards that place of fear is not to solve the other person's fear as if they were a problem, but to be present to them. And that's a very difficult thing. And so sometimes that means not saying hardly anything, but just really being there. I'm a very tactile person sometimes. So just like holding a hand or putting my arm on somebody, my hand on somebody's shoulder. Those kinds of things I think are really important. Although obviously coronavirus can't be doing that right now. Yeah, right. No, and I, and I like to think that like, oh yeah, I understand that um, we're not in control and I have to let go of control. And like, I have a, you know, I understand that kind of from a, like a purely intellectual point of view when it comes to like our faith and that your God is in control. I can say that, oh, I can say that to others. But then like this, I don't know, there's something about this because it does feel so outside of control, affecting really so much of the planet, thinking about people I know who might be 
especially vulnerable? Is that like, and then seeing some of these, you know, projections of, you know, a very high percentage of people are likely to kind of come down with this. Um, I'm realizing that, uh, no, like that is pure terror for me. Like I'm sitting in that right now. Like that's what I'm bringing to our conversation is, yeah, uh, yeah like th- that is like one of the first times I can remember in my like relatively sheltered, privileged life where I have, you know, not really felt very much in control. And, and still I can do things to protect myself or my family that a lot of people just don't have the privilege to do. So I'm in the office now. I take public transportation, but mm-hmm. I can drive, you know, I can drive to work. I can stay at home and work from home with a, a job that with good internet at my house. And I can you know do all of that. If like we need to take care of our kids, then like, oh, no sweat. I have plenty of sick time and a really understanding boss who would say, oh, yeah, don't don't worry about it. You know, do what you need to do. We're thinking like not all people have access to those those privileges. Yeah, in fact, almost no one does. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't, right? What it means is that uh, we who have those kinds of privileges, myself as a Jesuit, like I have impeccable health care. Like I'm, there's nothing for me to be afraid of, even though I'm in the middle of Milan in the midst of this. There's nothing for me to be afraid of, even if I get sick. Like there's nothing that I need to fear. The, the key is that it's really a very basic question, um, but it's one that the idea is very simple, but the living out, is a little more difficult or in fact much more difficult it's a it's a question of friendship with those who do not have the privileges that we have because if the poor or if those who are uh, less privileged than we are are just ideas to us that um, we don't really know them they don't have any daily impingement on our lives then we can think yeah like this is good and i should go do that or i want to be helpful or yeah i'm so privileged we can think all of those things but it's just irrelevant it's just really narcissism like it's an anxiety of narcissism and or narcissism of anxiety (laughs) but look if we have friends who are in this more vulnerable position and we make it part of our just normal daily lives like this is just part of what it means for me as a christian to live my life is to help take care of these people my friends who don't have these same things that I have, these same privileges that I have, then it won't be like some uh, enormous mode of anxiety. It will be, oh yeah, this is my buddy that I need to help figure out how they are going to get some kind of care. And I can do that, even if it's a hassle. So when we can, again, Pope Francis, like he's constantly providing us with ideas and, and like slogans that can summarize so much of what we need in our life, the spiritual realities that we try to live today. But he continues to say, uh, reality takes precedence over ideas. People are real. If we don't have friends who are these real people before us, just all these ideas that we become afraid of. So the the spread of this, the the deepening of fear, some of these these big questions and and worries are kind of against the backdrop, at least for for Christians of the se- season of of Lent, kind of into this that begins, you know, the Ash Wednesday, like reminder. You are dust, and to dust you you shall return. This kind of call uh, to repentance. Do you like? Have you felt like in your Lenten prayer experience, kind of any any connection to what what's going on here? Does like Lent help you like ap- approach this situation spiritually at all? The other day, I went to a church here in Milan called um, San Bernardino alla Asawa, which means um, Saint Bernard of the Ossuary, and it's basically uh, this church that is. A tiny little chapel is attached to it that the walls of which are made out of human bones 
they're made out of skulls and femurs and the links in our spine that we go up and uh it's one of the strangest and most morbid uh things that i have ever seen in my life but walking in there we come face to face with the fact that uh we too will end up like this and i stood next to one of these skulls that's at face height at head height and uh the skull on the wall was the same size as my head right i don't have any hair so like you could just see this to this and i thought yeah i mean i too will end up there one day and that doesn't therefore mean that everything is irrelevant now in fact just the contrary that um it means that the goal of my life needs to be made present made manifest now like the most important things in my life need to be chosen now and those things are not are not like a nice vacation in Honolulu like it's just irrelevant like the most important things of our lives are the things and people that we love the things that we have fallen in love with that have given ourselves to us that's what we have to take priority over so yeah like to the extent that uh, a worldwide health scare uh, a crisis can cause us to have to look the reality of our own deaths in the face memorare mortis i think that's actually very helpful for us even if it makes us afraid i mean i know that those who are listening to us talk right now can't see what you and i can see on the wall behind me is a crucifix and we wear i wear one around my neck i'm sure you do or many of the people who are listening do it's a dead body that we have around our neck So as you're there kind of in the midst of this reflecting on these things like facing this like are are you doing the work that you're there to do do you feel distracted do you feel like you're kind of able to be present to to what your your mission is right now Yeah I mean my hope was to be able to spend a lot of time with a group that was an ecclesial movement that was founded in Milan and still finds its center here Communion and Liberation and I have not been able to do that, which has been a little frustrating, to be honest. But um, because their meetings are all canceled, you know, so there's nothing to see and observe because nobody's doing their meetings. And there are a couple of the other movements that I was hoping to visit with that are also present here in Milan, also not having any meetings. So, I mean, it means that uh, I have a little more time to go see different churches, like, uh, like the one I mentioned to you, or I went to... San Ambrosio, where uh, it's St. Ambrose's church, where his body is interred below the altar. And just to see his body there, uh, an astounding sight. And another time I went to the crypts, uh, to the baptistry uh, beneath the Duomo, where we can see, like they just uncovered maybe 30, 40 years ago, the, the font where Ambrose baptized Augustine. And I walked inside there and usually this would be packed with people because everybody's seeing it there. I was the only person in the entire place. And I walked in and saw this octagonal baptismal pool and just immediately started crying. And I was like 376 years after the birth of Christ, this happened. And 1700 years later, I'm standing here. Incredible. Hmm. Any uh, any final thoughts or reflections or prayers uh, on your heart you want to share with our folks? I just want to ask us all to be attentive to those who are truly suffering, like really, really suffering from this. Um, what, the only other thing that's really occurring to me is this. Uh, 
I have a good friend, uh, Father Michael Rozier, who works at St. Louis University in public health. He's a brilliant man and a great thinker. And he wrote his doctoral dissertation. Um, and, and in the intro to that, he was trying to rethink Catholic healthcare uh, and to help us imagine what this might be, what Catholic healthcare could be for the future. He told this just very normal, but very really incredible story of how hospitals began in the United States of America. And he told a handful of these stories about mostly religious and mostly women religious going out to care for those who would not, no one else would care for. So going out to the logging camps out in Oregon and Montana, just caring for those who are working out there. Out there, Or we can think of the same kind of thing with um, everyone, people going out to care for lepers off the, off the islands in Honolulu, all of these kinds of things. This is literally where hospitals came from. They came, they were brought into existence because people, Christians, yes, but people were willing to go towards suffering rather than away from it and build walls to keep it away. That was what made Christianity an attractive thing. People were like, why would you ever do this? Why would St. Francis of Assisi kiss the leper as opposed to running away from the leper? That is who we are supposed to be as Christians. Now, I understand that maybe that way of looking at the world cannot be a public policy answer for how we deal with a global health crisis. Like, I understand. I want to learn from these experts as well about how we can minimize the risks for the elderly and these kinds of things. But we ought to be the ones who are going towards those who are suffering in love to care for them rather than sealing ourselves off behind some kind of walls of protection. Yeah, I just reminded of the uh, really kind of heroic witness from so many healthcare professionals, like all over the world, you hear those stories that like the, the rate of infection among healthcare professionals is, is extremely high. Yes. People who are going, moving, making that move toward out of that, you know, that obligation or that, that whatever that is rooted in for them, uh, being there, putting themselves at great risk, including doctors in, in that region of Italy, where you are just uh, some, you know, very, you know, gut-wrenching, challenging stories for us. But uh, yeah, that call of Jesus and that way he modeled that are always, again, making that move, that geographical move toward a yeah. physical move toward toward the suffering yes look like I, I know this is a little theoretical a little theological but that's all the incarnation means in our daily lives is a willingness to come into greater proximity with a with the thing that is wounded and vulnerable as opposed to putting more distance between ourselves and it that's all it means and if we're willing to do that or to the extent that we can do that then we're an incarnational people and therefore we're christians Patty, thank you so much for taking some time uh, out of your, your day to, to talk with us and prayers for you uh, in your, your studies and your travels, uh, safe home. And uh, yeah, just know, know of our prayers here and we appreciate uh, yours for us back here in the States. Great to be with you, Mike. Really appreciate it. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Dara Sump, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me, Mike Jordan Lasky. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. 
Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. (laughs) 